All right. All right. Yeah. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Shannon. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm great. Back at it. I'm really excited for our uh, our guest today. Um, good. He's a very good friend. Works very, very, very closely with my husband, and uh, and has a great story. And not to mention, you know, uh, a connection with epilepsy. So, I'll... right. You said his sister has epilepsy. Had or has that we'll have to ask him. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely had some seizures while he was growing up, and uh, and I know I've talked to him about this that they used to put a spoon in his sister's mouth. So that's. Uh, Interesting. It will be an interesting uh, thing to speak about and to yeah. talk about. And then I know about, I want to say it was about five years ago, his daughter uh, had a handful of seizures and went to, we are Orange County people. We live in Orange County, California. And uh, his daughter saw some doctors at Hogue Hospital, which is in Newport Beach. And uh, she's far as I know, she's doing mm -hmm. great. She's looking great. She's gorgeous. His daughter is. And, uh, and I think it was, and again, Guillermo can tell us, uh, it was all, I think it was a result of an infection that she had. But I think you will talk to any parent that a seizure is a seizure is a seizure is a seizure. Right. Whether you have it from an, a seizure disorder or something else that's been caused, either you're still watching your child or a loved one have seizures uh, is very traumatic. So anyway. Yes, we'll get into all that. And I'm really excited too, because um, you know, in terms of advocacy outside of the epilepsy world, and we'll talk about his family relations and how he dealt with epilepsy, but Guillermo was part of the Black 14. So we're gonna watch a little video. They actually received the 2023 NCAA Inspiration Award at the NCAA convention. And this is a really, really cool story. And it's truly inspiring. And um, I'm it's so, so humbled to, to have him on as yes. a guest. So a little background for our viewers out there is the Black 14 was a group of African-American college football players at the University of Wyoming who were dismissed from the team in 1969 for seeking to wear black armbands during a game to protest against racial discrimination. And I think that was because they were um, protesting the, uh, the BYU game where the Church of Latter-day Saints would not let black men become priests. Yes. So, and it was their coach that mm -hmm. uh, Lloyd Eaton, right, that would not let them wear those wristbands. Oh, man. I, well, I can't wait to get into that. So without further ado, we have this video um, produced by the NCAA that, that talks about that. So let's go ahead and uh, get let's some more. Back up. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Decade of the 60s in America began as a time of innocence and hope, but turned into a period of anger and violence. Assassinations, protests, and riots shook the country. You know, it was the tumultuous 60s. Hectic, chaotic, not knowing what the future held for you. Blacks were finally beginning to recognize their importance 
and the value. I would consider it uh, a transformational point in our country's history. Against that backdrop, the University of Wyoming had become a college football powerhouse with a national reputation. They'd been to the Sugar Bowl, been to the Sun Bowl. We had moved up to number 12 in the country. My goodness, we were stacked with players. We were good as a team and we were good as individual players. When the whistle blew, we always thought we, we could win. This was a team that was built to take it all in 1969. The Cowboys were undefeated and facing their rival, Brigham Young University, the upcoming week. BYU is a pretty good program. However, there was a movement across the country that against the Latter-day Saints. Because of what they, uh, their philosophy was about, you know, blacks and the priesthood. The Black Student Alliance came about saying, hey, would we be part of that protest? And we basically said we didn't, we weren't going to protest because what they believed or didn't believe, but we had other reasons the Black 14 wanted to protest, how they treated some of our Black athletes when they played in Provo a year or so prior to that, by cheap shotting them, calling the N-word. The older players would tell you what would happen and what's going to happen with BYU because it was never addressed. And we knew it was a situation. And so um, we were trying to set something up in terms of a protest. Feeling disillusioned by the discrimination and racism they were experiencing, 14 of the players from the Wyoming team approached their coach with a request. Well, the plan was to ask him for permission to wear black armbands during the BYU game. We were gonna share with him uh, what had happened and why we feel that there ought to be some physical display so as a group, we said, well, we're going to try to make sure that we do this in the correct way. And I, I think we did. And it had already been decided that if he objected and didn't want us to do this, we were going to simply play the game. And so we're going to ask, OK, what will you agree to in, in way of protest? <laughs> but we never got a chance to ask that question. I believe it was Joe Williams, I'm not sure, one of the captains that said, Coach, we came here today to, he was going to never finish the sentence. That's when the coach started berating us and told us we were all automatically off this football team. We were no longer Wyoming Cowboys. The Black 14, as they came to be known, were banished from their team. Where's the dialogue here? There was none. People think we went in there and refused the game, to play the game, if we couldn't protest. That was not the case at all. I was very angry and was angry for a long time. Some transferred away. Some left the school. Some never received their degree. The lives of the Black 14 were changed forever. I was one of the players that remained at the uh, university because I had nowhere to go. We were considered Black power advocates, part of, of the Black Panther Party, and all of it was a lie. We were disparaged all around the country. Some guys went to Canadian League, you know, some went back on the team. Some didn't go back to school. There was never anybody, I think, that took ownership of, hey, we should do something to honor these men. And I just felt like it was my job to, to do that. The University of Wyoming appreciates you and um, thank you for being leaders. I was quite emotional receiving that jacket. 
We had a written and a verbal apology, but that was an apology that we are now cowboys again. The event led to the Black 14 forming an LLC dedicated to giving back. The mission of the Black 14 Philanthropy Group is to educate, feed, and support underserved communities by providing food to needy families and educational scholarships to student athletes. It was a horrible event that went on in 1969, but we flipped the script. We've turned a tragedy into philanthropy. Most of the brothers knew that all hate will do is bring you down. These men, including my dad, have lived extraordinarily productive and great lives. This did not break them. Each of us had that sense of philanthropy within us, and that sense of, and as we say, old school giving back. We still want to continue to survive and thrive the way we can to uh, make, make our country a better country. Despite the negative impact their courageous act in 1969 had on their lives, the Black 14 today stand as an inspiration for their compassion, their dignity, and commitment to making the world a better place. Whoa. Hey, that's heavy. That's, that's that, that is that was beautiful. That was that beautiful. Was wonderful. Well, without further ado, here he is, the man himself. Welcome, Guillermo. Thank you. Guillermo, number 20, Guillermo Hysaw, who was yes, known back then as Willie. That's right. <laughs> right? I watched the video. Yeah. Willie Hysaw. That's a uh, oh, that, that is was, a lot to was, take. So you guys didn't yeah. even get you. You didn't even get to ask the question. Of... No, we didn't. You know, and the whole purpose of it was, you know, we had played BYU the year before, and uh, we were there on the JV squad. So our head coach wasn't there. Uh, he was coaching the varsity group. So what happened? He had no idea. And and the, the whole catalyst for it was at the end of the game, you know, you're over there cheering because you won because we came from way behind and beat them. And we look across the field and everybody's gone. So there was no shaking hands or, you know, so then we head to the locker room. They turned the sprinklers on and we had to run across the football field in the water. So we're wondering, what the heck is this? And as we're walking to the locker room, they had a picture of a black man and a gorilla hanging on the wall. And I'm thinking, okay, facing each other, what's this all about? So we go in, think nothing of it. You know, we're all wet and <laughs> changing. Next day, the headline on the Salt Lake Tribune read, Brigham Young washes evil off the field. And it goes through this whole story about how the Mormons were getting kicked out all across the US. Uh, and they ended up in the Great Salt Flats in, in Utah. And one of their uh, visions that Brigham had was that uh, Black people were descendants of Ham, which was one of Noah's sons. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they were cursed because Noah saw his father in the nude. And so we couldn't ascend to heaven after death. They left that part out. Uh, and the highest thing that we could attain in life or death was to become a Mormon priest. What We couldn't become Mormon priests because we were the lowest order of life. We were lower than a primate. Oh, okay, that's why there was a gorilla facing a black man. Mm. We were lower than a primate. So bottom line, what did this have to do with football? Nothing. <laughs> 
What did this have to do with that game or any other game that we played? Nothing. And so we felt like, okay, we're going to play BYU again next year. But now we're on the varsity, right? And so before we do this, we don't want to just go out there and beat them with our black skins, which is one of the things the coach said we should do. And we said we'd already done that, you know, that in our minds. So he's going to say this. So let's be prepared to address this issue. Let's first of all make him aware of what happened and why we felt that it was, you know, our responsibility to let them know that we didn't agree with them bringing their religious views on the gridiron. Had no place in football. That's what we were initially standing up against, not for them to change their policies or change their religious views. The Constitution gave them a right freedom of religion. So we weren't trying to encroach on that, but we just didn't feel it had any place in football. So that's what led to everything else. So I don't have to tell that whole story because the video did a good job of saying what happened. Yeah, it did. And then we uh, have a picture of the reunion shot there. Yes. Um, yeah, we all, we all came, they all brought us back and this was around two things. First of all, the coach that kicked us off didn't have the authority to do it. So the governor of the state came in and at that time it was Hathaway and he fired us after meeting with the trustees and meeting with the legislative uh, team in the state of Wyoming. Wyoming was a state supported school. So back then that meant that we were employees of the state. So the, uh. the coach didn't have the authority to kick us off. So the governor met with the coach and there's another whole long story about that. Uh, and at the next day, we, he didn't come back and meet with us. Uh, we saw the headlines in the local paper called the Branding Iron and it said, Governor Hathaway officially fires the Black 14. So we got fired. <laughs> that was the first time in my life I got fired from a job <laughs> and, oh and it was there. So we got fired because we, uh, we wanted to you know, ask the coach if there was a visual way that we could protest other than our black skins. And of course, mm -hmm. we never got to ask him the question. And uh, some of the photos or uh, the pictures you saw, uh, we were sitting in the stands watching that game against oh. BYU. And that's what we were doing. That's why we were there. And all the protesters were at that game because BYU had come to Wyoming uh, that year. So that's what wow. that's kind of the, the bring that context together. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. wow, that's that, that's so powerful. And then all this is culminating you know, after the reunion, and that video was part of another them apologizing, right? And them saying, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna give you your jerseys back because we had to okay. take pictures of that. Oh, nice. <laughs> they gave us a Letterman's jacket. And they gave us a written letter of apology from the now athletic director, the president Carlson, he's dead of the university. So he wasn't around. Uh, the coach Eaton, he ended up getting fired the next year and going to Green Bay Packers as a scout. And then they found his body up in uh, a remote area of Montana. He was dead. So he killed himself. So he's mm. gone. So he couldn't be there. And Hathaway, he died. So who was there that was there when we got kicked out? Nobody. So their program never went back to another bowl game. Think about that from 1969 
to the 2000s. They hadn't been to a bowl game and they couldn't recruit any uh, athletes who were of any value. I mean, I mean, they had some, but not black athletes. And back then we were in the top 10 API. Uh, we sure. were rated number five in the nation. You know, that's why we went to Sugar Bowl and the Sun Bowl and we were on the way to a bowl game that year. Uh, and so part of their uh, forgiveness or apology was say, hey, uh, we're going to give you a written letter of apology from the university, which uh, the athletic director is Berman. Uh, he wrote and gave the governor of the now governor of the state. He came and apologized on behalf of Hathaway, who had passed away. And uh, that's why we were there. And they reintroduced us, welcomed us back, you know, basically uh, asked us uh, if we would be ambassadors for the program and that it was wrong and in today's environment uh we could be a catalyst for their program so that that was kind of the the lay of that the contextual around that that uh visit back there sure that was really i watched uh it, it was in 2019 i think right on the 50 yeah. year anniversary that was really That's special I, and watching it and i had said earlier i came almost to tears a couple of times and it was a really um just inspiring mm -hmm. story and a couple of things that you know i really um took away was there was a moment when uh, there was a q a a question and answer mm -hmm. and the the team uh was sitting on the stage and yeah. one of the question was if uh lloyd eaton was right here what would each of you say to him That's and correct. i thought it was a great question i, I thought it mm -hmm. and to hear everybody's response was even greater and uh everybody's response was slightly different um mm -hmm. but uh and and this is i'm i'm repeating this for our listeners uh just so you can get a real true example of the kind of person that guillermo is guillermo's response was uh i would thank him for helping me transcend all and let him know that i am blessed because of that um and because of that experience i am who i am today uh and that's what I would tell him. I would ask him why, but I would tell him that thank you. And uh, I would have a dialogue, not a monologue. And I just thought that was so powerful. Um, especially, you know, we're, here we are and 50 years <laughs> later, and I just, we've come so far and and it's, you know, for February, it's Black History Month. And I just feel it, it was such a wonderful thing to say. Um, and a couple of one of your teammates said, I, I would say you you can't break my spirit, but you mm -hmm. can hurt my heart. And I felt like, oh, yeah. that was, you know, it kind of it, it touched me a little bit. And then Ron Hill said, did you know that we had mothers and fathers you and 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 that yeah. one that's the one that really took me down um but yeah you know as as a person with children and and you know um but just the response uh, you 
you know, thank you. You really helped me to transcend all. And I, and I thank you yeah. for saying that because I really feel like that's so powerful. And uh, to our people that are listening, just a little, you know, when Guillermo sends a text message in the morning, instead of saying great, good morning, he says grand rising. Uh, and, uh, and instead of saying thank you, he says gratitude. And, right. uh, and these are all things he's worked really closely with my husband on gratitude. Uh, and, and, and as a wife, I say, thank you. And, uh, and these are all just some wonderful, uh, things about Guillermo that I want people to know. Um, but I know I've said it and I like to talk, uh, but can you kind of repeat that? and more what you would tell your coach the you know what would you say to lloyd eaton uh and in your words again yes yeah, so you know thank you that was very uh emotional for me to listen to things that what i've said and that whole event again that was a that was a pbs broadcast by the way and they came out oh, to okay. yeah to do their their deal and uh, I'm listening to the guys and, and really, you know, deeply thinking about how our lives were impacted by that event. And when I say that event, that whole process, and where are we now? And there's no way to know what we would have done. You know, yeah, all of us were headed to the pros. They only selected five African-Americans a year. And back in that day, uh, most uh, college teams didn't have any African-Americans on their teams. And so I'm sitting there being thankful because I'm there. I'm being thankful because uh, it resonated with me what the other guys said, anything from punching him in the face to, you know, having, you know, some kind of uh, uh, anger. And that's why they labeled us rabble rousers, not rebel rousers, rabble rousers mm. to incite what a emotional response from the listeners of the audience. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to give a rabble rouser response. I'm going to think about and, you know, deeply how that's impacted me. And also what some of the players didn't have the advantage of was the coach himself. And the coach and my high school coach, Paul Briggs, God rest his soul as well, uh, were in the military together. And so my coach was a high school coach who coached you know, Frank Gifford and those guys. So if you go back in history, you'll get some of the football players that he had. Uh, and he was sending all of his best players to Wyoming. I could have gone to UCLA or USC or, you know, somewhere I thought was a better college school than, you know, for football. And my intent was to play football to get my education. So in thinking about what would I say to him, I put all that stuff together and, and uh, I would want to thank him because my life has been a blessing. Everything in my life has been a blessing. Even meeting Andy was a blessing. That was, you know, uh, not planned. I was a executive coach for CEOs and companies that did annual gross revenues of 200 million or more. And he came to me and reached out and said, Hey, tell me about this program. I signed him up the same day. And that was not by chance. And so 
I just feel like every single thing, me being a vice president at Toyota and Lexus, all the things that I had to do and got a chance to do from an advocacy standpoint in the last position that I held, all came to my mind as I'm sitting there on that stage. And why would I be angry at that coach, you know, live or dead? Why would I be angry? I, I was thankful. And that's why my comment was uh, that I didn't react. And to me, reactions are without thought uh, and certainly without deep thought. I responded, meaning I thought about what would I truly say to him? And Tony McGee, he played for Washington Redskins and New England Patriots, a couple of Super Bowl rings, you know. <laughs> so he was one of the ones of us that went on and, and was successful. He said, well, how could you even say anything to him? He'd be a ghost. I said, <laughs> I said, well, we're not talking about a ghost. The question was, what would I say to him if he were alive today? <laughs> so just putting all that in context, it just, uh, it was very emotional listening to each guy. Uh, even the reason for us to not be, uh, to wear the armbands, uh, everybody had a different position. Yeah, so, sure. That was, wow. and, and it was, it was very emotional to hear everybody. And I haven't listened to anything from uh, the mm -hmm. NCAA uh, events, just oh, yeah. uh, not that, and which I'm excited to. Um, yes. But I, it was also, you know, to hear you say this and, you know, it's a, a you know, I'm, was listening and what are, you know i have everything to be thankful for and uh you know i i you know i hear you say that and um and i know life hasn't been easy for guillermo and yes. um and and life isn't easy for a lot of people and it's right. uh it's it's easy to say oh well <laughs> you know, this happened to me and this happened to me. And, and I think the easier way out is, you know, to place the right. blame um, rather than to rise up and be exactly. thankful. And, um, mm -hmm. and so just knowing you and knowing Andy uh, and I think, I'm not sure exactly how many years ago it was, but it was, a handful at least of years ago uh that mm -hmm. i met you more right. than that uh, yes. met, 2016 <laughs> okay okay 2016 yeah. oh, okay so almost a handful a little bit more right <laughs> um but i yeah i do know that um guillermo's life prior to this moment hasn't been all peaches and cream and you know ice cream and chocolate sauce yeah. like you know, uh, there's been things that have been difficult. And one of those things I feel like, uh, and we kind of talked about, uh, was that you grew up with a sister that had seizures. I don't yes. think she has them anymore. Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah. She was, uh, she was diagnosed as a petite mall epileptic oh, okay. when, when we were kids and it got to the point where, you know, uh, they were giving me instructions, you know, about uh, being the caregiver because I was at home when my mother was trying to work. We were on welfare. My father had deserted us when we were kids. So, you know, between school and being at home, 
uh, with a younger sister and a younger younger brother. My older sister had already gotten married and and moved away, even though she was still there in Bakersfield. Uh, whenever my younger sister would have these uh, episodes, uh, I was the one that had to be the caregiver. And so not knowing a whole lot about epilepsy itself, uh, and then also not being really given a, a, a what I would consider an instructive protocol for what to do. I was told, you know, that make sure she doesn't swallow her tongue. Well, we know that that doesn't happen. But that, so what do you do? They didn't have the tongue depressors. I'm not sure the proper name. Uh, so I'd use a spoon to try to you know get it in her mouth while she's having a, a convulsion and you know to keep her from and then keep her calm hold her head up different steps that they would tell me to take but more importantly that back then they had a they had a uh, a, a pill that was that dissolved so it wasn't a liquid a liquid medicine um but it was a quick dissolved tablet and each one of them had a different strength there were four of them all the way from like 250s, 500, 750, 1,000 sure. milligrams. And I would have to figure out which one to give her based on the severity of the seizure. So oh, it, got wow. that, yeah, it got to that point. <laughs> and, so, and so I called my sister to make sure. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm going to be talking to other people. You know, this is what happened. Right. Okay. Well, what happened that caused you not to? Because I went away to college, right? And she said, well, our mother decided that I was being over medicated. So my mother stopped all the medication. And I said, well, what happened? She says, Guillermo, I haven't had a seizure since childhood. Wow. And she's in her 60s. So I thought, well, that's amazing because I never brought it up again and said, hey, have you been having seizures? That's her in the green top. And my mother, of course, she deceased uh, last year, uh, but that's her in the red and in the hat. She's in hospice care. Uh, but I said ah. to my sister, I said, well, that's amazing that, you know, and you've not had not one. She said, nope, I have never had a seizure since. So I'm not sure what really happened in terms of my mother or why she even felt that that uh, the meds were, you know, too much or the wrong ones. Uh, but uh, that's what I was asked to do. So, you know, one of the things they also said is make sure that you stay healthy. Uh, you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of her. And so I was reminded of the, you know, on the airlines when, oh, if we reach a certain altitude and the mask comes down, <laughs> put yours in first. <laughs> right. So, that's a that you know <laughs> but you know so it was just uh it was kind of stressful you know to see my sister like that and there was nothing i could really do and not really understanding what she was experiencing or why you know uh i know there was a lot of brain activity and and we were we were we were mistold cuz they were we were told that certain certain diseases are or what did they say? Uh, only happened to the, the the wealthy and the upper class. Oh, we were, oh, we were in the projects and we were poor. And the two diseases that they named were diabetes and, of course, epilepsy. Sure. And yeah. And so hey, and 
your feet would swell if you ate too much uh, red meat. And so there was, you know, a, a third one, but it really wasn't a disease, right? <laughs> sure. Well, there so, is, you know, it's nice so fun. Yeah, it's, and it's, there, it is more common for yes. black people to have epilepsy. There are more people right. um, in the world, uh, you know, African-American, I mean, in Africa, in the United States, um, with epilepsy than any right. other race, uh, right. which is very interesting. And yes. uh, when you, you know, sometimes we as a foundation, we like to, you know, look at in black history month especially but all the time uh mm -hmm. you know celebrities or individuals um that have epilepsy or have had epilepsy and exactly. the amount of celebrities that are black that have or have passed away from epilepsy is very high mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's a very true fact that yes. uh too bad oh, like we don't know why there's not technically a reason but mm -hmm. um but wow those yeah. taking those pills is that's a tough one and you know i just uh both nathan and i actually had seizures not that long ago and my doctor i said to him could i be taking a pill that is causing me to have a seizure like it just doesn't right. mix right. with my body and he said yes that's very yeah. real and yeah. uh, but and that's the problem. You know, it's a mm -hmm. art, it's a science, all of it, figuring it mm -hmm. all out. It's mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's so difficult. Well, what was interesting about what you just said is, you know, that's basically symptomatically what my mother thought. And she thought, you know, and then having my my uh, uh, sister having uh, COPD, it's difficult to you know, oh. the, the esophagus to swallow, right? So that's why we got the dissolve type tablet. And so, you know, I'm trying to wedge in a tablet while she's having a seizure, you know, and, and not knowing if I got the right strength, you know, oh, and then sure. the whole misconception, you know, but how would I know, you know? Right. I'm just doing what, hey, they said uh, caregivers should be doing, you know? Sure. And of course she'd stop. And then she wouldn't have one again for a while, or she'd walk into a wall and we went, what, what is she? And then next thing you know, she's out. Sure. And then uh, somewhere to to the level of severity, she didn't have a recall that what had happened, you know? Right. And so, uh, as, again, as a high school uh, student, you know, trying to be the caregiver and not understanding, you know, the, the uh, symptoms or the cause, and then certainly I had no basis for questioning the treatment. Sure, sure. My mother did. And she felt like it was interacting with her the wrong way and that uh, we're just going to stop. And and she did. But I didn't know that she had already gone away to college. Wow. And, and then she says, oh, yeah. Are you, you're older than your sister? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm the second oldest. I have an older sister. I was number two, and then I had my my uh, the sister Desiree. Her name was Elizabeth, and we nicknamed Desiree. Okay. Uh, she was my younger sister, and then my youngest brother. He died of uh, diabetes. That was oh, the other wow. one I okay. told you about. Okay. And I had you know two uncles. They died of diabetes. Oh and wow! So yeah, so 
but he died, uh, you know, many years ago. So as a young man, so by not following the treatment, not having the protocol, sure. you know, which was a catalyst for me to really try to take the position that I will, you know, ultimately became as vice president of what they call then was diversity, equity, and inclusion. I changed it to cultural transformation and business development. So those were the pieces that I did because I was tied to the community in one sense, but then I was also in corporate the other sense. So I was working with dealers and what have you. Uh, but you know, to use that platform to have some impact on children, to have some impact sure. on on healthcare and health wellness. And, and two of the things that resonated most with me were food deserts, number one, that you find in, in uh, uh, underserved and underrepresented communities uh, where they're not getting the proper nutrition, they're not getting vegetables and fruits, and, and they call them food deserts. Uh, so working with uh, 100 Black Men of LA, which I ultimately became a president of, uh, that organization. Uh, and that's how one of the pictures I sent you was with uh, Reardon. He became an honorary member of the 100 Black Men uh, because we were working with, you know, the youth and the community. And then another one I sent you, uh, Dr. Winston Doby and Charles E. Young at UCLA had done a study uh, on African-Americans in, in both in healthcare and education and gave that program to the 100 black men. And guess what was in that program? Epilepsy, diabetes, oh. uh, food disparities. And that came from UCLA. And so we named an award after Charles E. Young and Dr. Winston Doby, sure. uh, which obviously Dr. Doby is dead. I'm not sure about Charles E. Young, uh, but UCLA have that program. So I, as a vice president at Toyota, was funding it and then we implemented it. And of course we got points of lights awards from three presidents of the United States around the work we were doing with what we call young black scholars. And the UCLA study showed that they were graduating from high school, but not going on to college. And they gave the reasons why. And a lot of it ironically was tied to health and wellness. Sure. And so, uh, that was kind of the uh, another form of quote unquote advocacy for me. Sure, uh, was to be able to do that. Wow, wow, yeah. that's I love that. Uh, yeah. And then the other, I have two more things. I don't know if Nathan, but uh, uh, the other area of advocacy that I heard you guys speak about was with the Black Fourteen and a yes. foundation that was built there, and I being the yeah. CEO of a foundation whose uh, mission is to, one of our missions, I suppose, is to um, help individuals in disenfranchised community, you know, in areas of education and wellness and health and wellness and education. And, yeah. which is very similar, it sounds uh, like. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Black yes. 14 Foundation? Yeah, so one, so one of the things that we did was when we went there to get receive that recognition and uh, letterman's jackets and letters of apology was we at asked about, well, you know, a number of us uh, lost uh, compensation. Uh, 
because we couldn't go on to the pros and some didn't graduate. So they didn't professionally excel. So they lost money. So, hey, back then when we filed a lawsuit and it was called Joe Williams versus the University of Wyoming, and Joe was one of the recipients of the uh, Inspiration Award, um, we were asking for a million dollars and we're going to divide it up equally among the all 14, even though three of our guys have, have all died ahead of us. And, and so, but we were going to recognize everybody. Couldn't do that. So they said, well, what we'll do is you guys can establish a foundation and the foundation at the university monies can go into the foundation, but we're not going to give you honorary degrees. We're not certainly not going to give you any money, uh, but we'll help you with your foundation and your foundation can do two things. One, it can address uh, scholarships for those that may want to go back to school. And the, sco and the school itself would have to be Wyoming. It couldn't be a scholarship to a school <laughs> of your choice. <laughs> you know, So you can come here and then we'll give you a full scholarship and it'll come out of the foundation. And then the other one is to be able to take any funds that are raised uh, and use it how you see fit to benefit the community at large. So one of the initiatives that came out of that was the LDS Church of, of all entities has a annual and ongoing monthly uh, food bank. And they have their own farm, they raise food, and then they give it away. And so they wanted to do an alliance, uh, a collaboration and align themselves with us to give away 20,000 tons, not pounds, tons of food per truck to nonprofits that we would identify. And they would give us 36 trucks over the next three years. And this was four years ago. So that program's over. But they were doing it before we became part of it. And they're doing it now. And so uh, each one of us would have to identify a nonprofit. And that nonprofit uh, would receive, had to be a 501c3. They had to look and vet it and legitimate. And then they would ship the truck to that location. They'd show up with us. So you saw a picture of the pallets sure. of food, what have yep. you. And, and uh, they show up with us. And so I got one truck here. I tried to get one tied into Andy. So the beauty of me being with Andy oh, is sure. he's dealing with the homeless, right? whether right. they're veterans or not veterans. And so the, the home key project wow. and being able to do stuff with the VA, uh, which is going to be announced by the, the new mayor, Karen Bass, uh, that we're taking veterans off the street. 4,000 people, you know, this, this year off the street. So, you know, so, so those foot, so one of the things I wanted to do is to be able to say what, we not only house them, but we feed them. That's and great. So, yeah. So what's the next thing you want when you have a house? You have to eat every day. Right. And yep. so and so uh, that was my intention was to try to expand it beyond that. So out of the foundation, uh, the Black 14 established at the University of Wyoming, this collaboration occurred with the LDS Church to be able to give food. So that would address, as I mentioned earlier, food disparities and what they call food deserts, because all of this food meets the criteria for healthy foods. It's not peanut butter and 
jam, which we used to get from the welfare when I was a kid, we'd line up me and my mother and daughter and my sister, older sister would be shamed to go. And we'd get these boxes of powdered milk and this hard cheese and, and a big bag of beans and from the from the commissary at the at the welfare. Right. And that was what they gave us as part of the of the welfare package, you know, so, so this was way beyond that. So I had roots in my head, you know, about how we were going to use this foundation. And now I'm thinking, you know, as a result of the health and wellness piece, you know, what can we do to address what's happening with epileptics? And so in being a coach with Brett Hundley, who has this foundation, Brett's one of my clients. So mm -hmm. I coach him on both his personal and professional. I'm thinking of ways to collaborate and use the funds that we have there to support the Epilepsy Foundation, because I know from personal experience what it was like with my sister. And I know from personal experience that they're not getting the right information. They're not getting right. the right level of treatment. They're not, sure. you know, these, these trucks show up in the community that, you know, that was really prevalent during COVID, you know, giving them immunizations if they wanted to take them. But sure. what are they doing about the more serious and 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 predominant, sure. you know, diabetes and epilepsy? Nothing. A hundred. So that that's my that's my intent there. And and yeah. Uh, and I just and wanted I to think, get all of that in there real quick so that you well, understand. Well, I think it's. You know, it, it reminds me of Brett and and our the Hunley Foundation. And I think, um, you know, for those who are listening who don't, Brett's a you know professional football player. Um, yeah. He's currently signed with the Ravens, and yeah. uh, he's it's actually just come out. He uh, is playing, going to do a season with the XFL with the mm -hmm. Vegas Vipers to get in some yeah. off season experience. So, yeah. um, and Brett himself is a, a chef and a cook and, and yeah. uh, has in the past brought in same uh, trucks of food um, to homeless shelters and things of that nature. Um, right. So he's, you know, really trying to combine his passion with uh, something very similar. And I think, what a great way. I mean, the LDS to get them back involved. I think that that's, yeah, that's absolutely. really a, really a, a fantastic uh, thing, but to do, but before we move on, um, Brett had this to say, um, mm -hmm. he said, Guillermo Haisa embodies the true essence of courage and determination. His historical achievements serve as a reminder that even in the face of adversity, one can fight for what is right and create a lasting impact. Wow. And I, I think <laughs> that's, you know, what we've been trying to uh, let our listeners and viewers know the whole time. Uh, and just from our perspective, it, you, you do a very good job of uh, sharing that part of yourself. But um, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate uh, I, and I've been, I feel like I've been dominating this whole uh, aspect. Nathan's sharing pictures, but um, I do want to talk a little bit. And I know your daughter. Uh, well, I'm going to say this: you and Brett also have that in common. In that, um, yeah, your sisters, sisters with right. 
seizures. Uh, yeah. And then on a very similar note, you know, Brett has a nephew with pretty severe epilepsy also. And you had a, or you have, you have a daughter who had seizures and, yeah. I, you know, a handful of them. And mm-hmm. uh, isn't she gorgeous? Uh, yeah. I mean, like <laughs> stunning. I can't even with this right now. Um, right? Yeah. She's beautiful. Yes. What's her name again? What's her? Megan. Megan, that's right. Megan. Yeah. And tell us, wait, go back. Will you go back, Nathan? Mm -hmm. There's Megan. We go back to the family picture. There we go. Will you tell us, uh, Guillermo, who who everyone is? Yeah, that's uh, on the the left. Our left uh, is in the red. uh, Top is my daughter, Megan. My, My youngest son, Imari. Uh, of course, me, my wife, Kimberly, and my oldest son, uh, Stephen Jamal. Uh, Jamal right. is, a, is my oldest son is an imam, uh, studied in Syria, Damascus, and, and lived in Yemen for many years. And he travels all over uh, Europe and parts of the U.S. Uh, teaching Islam, Islamic law. Oh, wow. And of course, he's, he's dressed traditionally because he came to, <laughs> came to me, so he wasn't wearing his normal attire. And then my youngest son, Amari, uh, he works for Uline. He's a regional director for Uline, which a lot of the products that we use in construction and in the industry in general, uh, they populate Lowe's and Home Depot with a lot of things oh. that safety related, et cetera. So that's my youngest son. And then my wife, uh, she's been with Delta Airlines for over 40 years, 50 years. Right, that's and, right. Uh, and my daughter, uh, she graduated from USC and um, then went to Culinary Institute and worked for Food Network. And now she does still work with them. And then she does some, yeah, matter of fact, NBC is going to be uh, putting her on a program, uh, maybe on a regular basis. Uh, uh, doing culinary type stuff. So uh, she's uh, still doing that and then working independent uh, with different, when that picture of Richard Sherman, that was a Panera Bread deal that they were doing. And she was there oh. to do one of the his recipes with his wife. And so she was working with Panera Bread at that time. Oh, and yeah. then of course, she got me over there with Denzel Washington. <laughs> that, was <an> event. <laughs> that was at an event where we were... Uh, 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 the BET Awards, and we were sponsors oh. for that. So, so, and then again, that was again specifically around an advocacy initiative. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, oh, I love that. That was great. Those, wow, that's yeah. a. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience of um, your daughter and having the seizures yeah. and? Um, yes, she. We were. She actually, you know, she travels extensively because of my wife uh, and then us, you know, we travel quite a bit, my wife working with Delta Airlines and her and some friends uh, decided to go to to uh, Machu Picchu and, and they were going to go on a tour and what have you. And on the way, we think that, you know, it, it was either something she ate or drank, but everybody else had it too, but nobody else had any side effects. And it was uh, she had a reaction and it was almost debilitating. So 
they weren't going to let her fly back because they didn't want to be responsible for anything that happened on the plane. So uh, we eventually got her back home, hospitalized her. Uh, they did a series of tests, uh, found a bacteria of some sort. They never told us the name of it that they thought they weren't clear on whether or not it had caused the uh, seizures that she was having. And I saw the similarity between what she was experiencing and my sister in terms of the, the seizure. So that my first thought was, this is an epileptic seizure. I didn't want to say that, but having had experience with it, I know what it looks like. And so uh, she recovered from that. And then not too long later, uh, she had another seizure. These seizures, and then most recently, not even, what, two months ago, a, a month ago, she had another one. So she was diagnosed oh, I didn't know with... That. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, just, I would say, yeah, just four weeks ago, uh, we had yeah. to rush her over to Hogue Hospital again, and they diagnosed her with acute migraine. That's what they said was the catalyst oh, for it. Oh, sure. Yeah. That she was having acute migraines and to the point where it then developed into a seizure. But what they prescribed was very different than what I had experienced, you know, many, many years ago with, sure. my, with my sister. And it was, uh, they called it a, a migraine cocktail. And it, and it, and it, and what it was, was a bunch of different migraine pills mm, yeah. <laughs> from yeah. the pharmacy that you put together. And then they had one specific prescriptive medicine, uh, for her to take, uh, in the event that she had any, uh, discomfort, you know, and that the cocktail wasn't so obviously she didn't take the cocktail. <laughs> she didn't want to take uh, it. And, uh, sure. But they, uh, you know, diagnosed her with uh, acute migraine. And she's been having uh, this migraine off and on to different degrees of severity. But uh, so we're not sure what it is, sure. to be honest with you. And it doesn't happen on a routine basis or fr frequently enough to, to really, you know, I don't know how to more do more exploration because we've been, thanks to you, uh, and your organization uh, had certain uh, doctors look at her and examine her, and they've not diagnosed her as petite or grand or any mall uh, of epilepsy. So uh, I'm not saying we ruled it out, <laughs> but um, <coughs> there's been no high to sure. it. I love that any mall because it's true. Oh, yeah, that's uh, good. <laughs> well, Nathan and I can you know relate on all the malls, all, all the malls, malls. <laughs> all, all the malls. Uh, and um, I didn't know about the most recent. So she's supposed to take the medicine when she feels bad. Yes, and it will hopefully prevent it. Prevent the seizure, uh, a seizure or anything, any, uh, and make the migraines go away. Oh, so the seizures are provoked by the migraines is what it sounds yeah. like and sure. they're the cause, right? Whereas right. epilepsy is two or more unprovoked seizures. So right. without without right. the absence of, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, we right. wish for the... But we yeah. also know that 
migraines and epilepsy a lot of times go hand in hand. And I will say in my family, uh, epilepsy is genetic. Uh, My nephew Mm -hmm. has it. My dad uh, has, they're called myoclonic jerks. Like they're just a little, you know, like you've got your coffee cup and it, um, but you know, to me, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Of course, my doctor, who is also at Hogue, uh, says mm-hmm. it's a big deal. It's a big deal. You're still having yeah. a seizure. That's but right. uh, my brother uh, has migraines, really mm-hmm. gets really bad migraines. And he's mm-hmm. he's the dad of my nephew that has epilepsy. Oh, and yeah. so it's it's interesting if if we put it all together, we mm-hmm. would my guess is that we would find some correlation in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, but who so knows? we're monitoring I mean, it very closely because, okay. you know, I, I, I'm not taking anything for granted because I've had that experience. And sure. again, like I said, I, I observed it. I know what the treatment protocol was back then. And thanks to you and Brett, I know what it is now. And so, uh, I jump right away. I'm not trying to be the 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 medic or or do any prognosis. I get her over to Hogan, and uh, you know, at any cost. And then we stay there until they come back and release her. And oh, hydrating good. her isn't enough, you know, which is right. all they did the last time. They hydrated her and and then sent her home with a with a uh, cocktail, migraine cocktail. That's what they yeah. called it. So, wow, that's yeah, interesting. I've never, yeah, yeah, I've never heard about that. And I'm curious to find yeah. out what's in it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Tell us, well, I mean, I know we're almost up, but tell us, Guillermo, uh, how is that? What's that like watching your daughter have a seizure? Again, you know, it, it, it was flashbacks of, you know, being with my sister. It, it's, uh, you feel like, you know, you're the post, you're the parent, right? Or, or the caregiver. You don't even have to be a parent in, in any of those cases. But in mine, uh, I'm the parent and, and you want to do something to not just help them, but to prevent it. And to me, as I'm, I'm, as I'm observing it, I'm thinking again, what can I do? What could I do? Or how can I help prevent not treat this from happening, you know, and, and this is my daughter that I'm observing. I'm witnessing. It was my sister that I observed and I witnessed, but what could I do about it? Nothing. And then the protocol that they gave me, that was, that was responding, responding to what already occurred. But is there enough research being done? Is there enough uh, education being shared in terms of even the treatment and the protocols that you need to do. And if you can feel it coming on, you know, who do you tell or what's the, you know, they need to know as well, not only the caregiver, but the person that is experiencing these episodes, you know, I just, I, I want to know, you know, how I can do something to help prevent it. I I didn't want to say cure, I don't know that it's a, a curable thing and I don't know enough about the genetics of it to say that, you know, 
Uh, how do you test for it in advance to know that this is going to happen? So then we need to prepare for that, the, the onset of these things occurring. I, I don't sure. know that. So that's, yeah, that's where I feel helpless. But at the same time, I feel encouraged and inspired myself by the need. Here's another area that we, meaning me and anybody else who consciously wants to have an impact. Sure. You know, I supported the, the Danny Thomas uh, Children's Hospital in Memphis oh, many yeah. years ago, sure. you know, and did stuff with them. So anything that has to do with kids, you got me, you know, yeah. and, and sure. this is where you first start to find them out about these types of things, uh, but specifically epilepsy itself sure. and seizures, period, you know, because yeah. they all, they all look the same. They all have the same, you know, onset, uh, but what can we do about it? You know, sure. so that, that concerns me. Yeah. And, and it's very, uh, you know, some, some types of seizures, uh, I wouldn't call them curable, but you can, people yeah. can grow out of them. Um, right. some are right. treatable. Oftentimes right. they're very treatable. Some mm -hmm. are not, uh, mm -hmm. some, if they don't catch them early enough, they're going to, you know, have horrible effects on a, you know, newborn or baby's, mm -hmm. you know, brain. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, there's, there's a lot. And I always think it was very interesting, very, uh, just how we met you, uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, I've, you know, had seizures and epilepsy forever and, mm -hmm. and then not much later, your daughter started having them and how you're, That's you've right. been just such a, great influence and impact in my husband's life. And, and that was a real, um, mm -hmm. I think he feels like you help him so much. And I think that was an area that Thank he you. really felt like he could yeah. give you something back. And, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you have any more pictures, Nathan, of to share, but I'm going to read a little quote from my husband, um, about mm. Guillermo. And um, it says, I don't know if you do. If you don't, it's fine. I, I know we had a lot and I thought they were all so interesting, but. Um, yeah, anyway. no, I, I got, uh, you go ahead and read. I got some, I got some amazing photos here. Yeah. Okay, great. So my husband, uh, Andy, uh, has said, uh, Guillermo has been instrumental in me not only turning my business around, but also tuning me into how I can harness my true potential through gratitude, goal setting, and believing anything I want to achieve is possible. And it's true. And I know I see it. I, I live with him. Uh, I see him as a parent. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I know that it's true. And so I, I just thought that was really special. Uh, it is. Thank that. you so much for sharing that. <laughs> sure. sure. I'm, I'm very humbled by that. You know, my, my, my one last thought <laughs> in answer to your question about how it makes me feel, uh, the STEM program, hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math, the technology piece and the science piece. Um, I sat on the board over at Cal State LA under Dr. Keith Muyung, who was the uh, engineering, computer science, and technology dean of that college. And when I sat on his board, one of the things I was thinking about is how could we harness the science 
and the technology and have that have an impact on epilepsy and seizures. Because if it's tied to the, you know, I don't know all of the, the biological terminology, but the, ele the electro frequencies in the body and tied to the mind and the brain, what yeah. technology is being developed around that? To me, yes. that's the research component that really could be uh, a catalyst to uh, prevention, if not cure. If it's genetic, then it would have to be prevention. It couldn't be cure. Sure. But some, for some reason, my older, my younger sister grows out of it and doesn't have them anymore. My daughter doesn't have them as frequently, but then I know others that do. And sure. so there has to be some science and some technology, and that causes me to uh, want to reach back out to Dr. Mu Young and find out more about what's happening in the medical realm of, of the STEM program. Yes. And I think that that's such an important thought. Uh, and, and there, I know, and Nathan knows, um, there is a good amount happening. And there's an organization here in Southern California called Cure, cure.org. Uh, and they are all about finding, um, doing research and finding a cure for epilepsy. What does Cure stand for? I forget exactly. Uh, Citizens United and research and research. Yes. Oh, and super. Yeah, it's really it's a great program. And uh the also I'm not sure if you're familiar with Cameron Boyce. Uh Cameron yes. Boyce. Okay. So um his family has the foundation. Cameron Boyce for those that are listening uh anybody in the epilepsy world knows who Cameron Boyce is, but Cameron Boyce uh, was a Disney star uh, who mm -hmm. passed away from, yeah. it's called SUDEP, Sudden Unexpected Death from Epilepsy, uh, I, I want to say two or three years ago. And mm -hmm. his parents are very closely tied to the CURE organization, and they also have their own organization. And uh, they are closely tied to, you know, finding out why this is happening so that people aren't yeah. passing away from seizures and yeah. uh, and and the kind of epilepsy that Cameron Boyce had is the same kind of epilepsy that Nathan and I have and uh, although we are we don't have as many seizures as a mm -hmm. lot of people and if on the spectrum of epilepsy we're very well controlled um, mm -hmm. we do have the kind of seizures that if somebody is not around, we could choke on blood That's or right. some and pass away. And actually my most recent seizure, which I'm not sure if you have talked to Andy was just a week ago. Yes, um, I did. Yeah. he said, and this was really the first time, but that I, the way that I was, uh, seizing, uh, I had mm -hmm. hit my mouth and mm -hmm. I was actually bleeding from my mouth and he mm -hmm. had to turn me so that I wouldn't choke on my own blood. And wow. that was yeah. really the first time. And I, a lot of, so what happens is that happens in at night in the yes. middle of the night and there's nobody around. Uh, yes. And I've never had a seizure when I've been sleeping. I'm not sure if Nathan has, 
Um, mm-hmm. But it is the same kind of epilepsy. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's good to know that people are hopping on board um, and helping mm-hmm. out. Um, some, the other family that's really gotten involved with Cure is the family from Hamilton, the musical. Uh, oh, Miguel. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, or I don't know, what's his name? I, I, anyway, um, they had a daughter with special, pretty severe special needs uh, mm-hmm. who passed away. Also, I think from a seizure, uh, not just, right? I think she actively was having a seizure. I don't know the story, but they uh, are have become very involved in the epilepsy community. Oh, okay. So, which is yeah. really, it's great to have people um, that are well-known or have family members that were well-known that are now actively, uh, yes. you know, become active. You know, that's what we say, are active in advocates and mm-hmm. uh, just doing something to... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. using their voice i think yes yeah i i think i think appropriately when when you talk about football players or any athlete that has that kind of a platform uh like brett is doing uh bringing awareness not only bring awareness but then bringing in resources to address the research and and the technology around the science of prevention, care, and cure, uh, to me is huge. I think that, you know, appropriately, that's something that you can take any type of platform that gives you a greater audience and talk about things outside of you that impact everyone uh, and someone in the community at large. Uh, So somebody at every game has something. Somebody at every in every audience has something. You don't always know what that something may be, but if they know that you are taking your platform and addressing that something that's relevant and relative to them, to me, that's powerful. And that's a good use of not only your time, but your energy as a, a athlete. And all the athlete means is that you have a halo effect. And that halo effect is what? The people that see you as being great at what you do and some people wanting to aspire to be like you. And so why not be comprehensively like me? Because the me is beyond what you just see on the athletic field. The me is what I do outside of that in the area of giving and giving back and trying to have an impact on health and wellness particularly uh, with that something for everyone. And so my encouragement is for athletes to do that. I don't care what sport you're in. Uh, When I was sitting there talking to Peyton Manning, that's what I told him. I said, guess what? Your legacy isn't going to be football. It's going to be the impact that you have on those kids that are looking at you. And oh, by the way, it may be somebody you don't even know that you never meet and you will have a huge impact on their lives and the direction that they take in life. So 
you have a halo effect. Be careful what you do, Peyton. <laughs> and I was sitting there just talking behind the stage. And this was a real conversation. And he, and he looked at me and he said, thank you for that, Guillermo. Thank you. And so my, my feeling is that, that every athlete should take the opportunity to use their platform, not for, you know, political reasons or any of that. I mean, they, if they want to do it, that's up to them. But the thing that I said to Peyton was, your real legacy is going to be the impact you had on others and the difference that you made in their lives. And I think that this was a great opportunity to make the awareness of the epilepsy, the foundation and, and what it is and how it impacts your life. And these seizures that you don't know what they really are may be just that. So you need to pay attention and then you need to get involved and not just use your money for, you know, uh, peripheral things or superfluous things, in my opinion, uh, that really don't impact the people that are sitting in the stands and the audience watching you. Sure. So, so now you can then spread it and you can be contagious in a positive way by making them aware of what it is that you support, why you support it, and how they themselves can get involved. And to me, that's huge. Uh, huge. And science and technology is huge. We really need to access that. We really do. Yep. A hundred percent. Do well, you, I, I mean, that was amazing. Um, I don't know, Nathan, if you have any, any other questions. I, I just have a big thank you i want to send to you guillermo for joining this program and in the back of my head in addition to um your story and how you've taken care of your sister and your learning and you continue to transcend in the back of my head i've been thinking about how you said on this program reactions are without thought and i've been thinking about all the stupid reactions i've had over my life and right. I've never heard it put like I've never heard it put that way. So I am yeah. sending a big thank you, especially when You're we welcome. talk about advocacy, um, as Shannon has pointed out. And, you know, we we're really involved in the advocacy for epilepsy. And it's not it's more than just sort of raising awareness. It's like, well, what's the means to the end? What's going to yeah. take us down that road yeah. to a cure? What's going to take us down that road? To, to completely prevent that, like, where is the smart move to put resources yeah. to end epilepsy? And yeah. a, a lot of people can come in and just kind of react and just be kind of say, oh, well, let's do that. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes I've also seen resources thrown without much thought. So uh, mm -hmm. you've answered a lot of my questions. I thought Shannon's done an amazing job asking, especially <laughs> I did. My question was going to be about kind of advocacy in the sports arena, which nice. you just actually uh, answered that with your story yeah. with Peyton Manning. So um, instead of a question right now, I, I just want to give you a big thank you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that was yeah. right. Uh, it was interesting from beginning to end, Guillermo. Uh, I think thank the world you. of you, I'm, so happy that you agreed to be on the podcast I, and you know, I can't wait till the next time I get to see you. So, Oh, and I, I did have one question. Yes. Uh, what did you do after it, you know, you said, and some people went to different colleges, some people stayed, yeah. what did you yeah. do? 
I actually um, moved to Michigan and the attorney that represented us, represented us in the case against Wyoming adopted me so that I wouldn't have to pay out-of-state tuition. And I went to Michigan State's Honors College. It was called Oakland University. And and uh, I didn't play sports <laughs> initially, but the Dallas Cowboys were interested in me. So I went there and got my undergrad degree in philosophy and psychology. Fast forward, coming back to California years later, working with, I thought, hey, you know what? I think I owe myself the tryout. So I went to Thousand Oaks to Cal Lutheran College, which used to be the Dallas Cowboys off-season training camp. And I thought I was going to be a walk-on and make the team, right? <laughs> so they had interest in me. But everywhere I would go work-wise, they would say, oh, yeah, you're that rabble-rouser troublemaker, you know. And so um, I got labeled that way with General Motors, which I did end up going to work for and for 16 years and then leaving them and going to Toyota and Lexus. Uh, but I did a tryout and uh, left the same day. So I was told that, you know, hey, you have a no pickup option, uh, which meant either I played for Dallas or I played for no one. And I thought, you know what, I can make more money, you know, in corporate America than work than playing foot. Back then, they didn't have multi-million dollar contracts, you know. Sure. And so I went to work for uh, General Motors. And then 16 and a half years later, a bunch of promotions and what have you. Uh, I got recruited to start, name, and launch the Lexus division of Toyota. And wow. so I had, had a position as a regional director for Porsche Cars North America. And I for, went that to become uh, one of the first 10 people to name, launch, and roll out Lexus worldwide in California. So I uh, got back with them. And, of course, a series of promotions and stuff. That's why I sent you all those paper articles with each one of my promotions, you know, so all the way up to VP of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Wow. Did that until I took early retirement to give back and become a consultant working with the same Lexus dealers. We only appointed 200 nationwide. So Toyota didn't want to do it. So I launched it in several countries around the world and then came back and then it became their coach outside of Toyota and then was with Vistage Worldwide as a executive coach and and a consultant. And that's how I met Andy. And then the relationship grew to the point where I thought, you know what, I'd rather do work with Andy because his advocacy, you know, his number one thing other than being a great husband and father is being, and I call him this, a philanthropist extraordinaire. He believes in giving back to others, period. And so I'll show you this metaphorically. If Guillermo was a mythical person, this would be me. And what it is, is it's a guardian angel protecting children. And so I've got many different uh, statuettes and figurines, but this one exemplifies who I would be. So I'd be out there doing anything health and wellness wise or socially wise to protect children. So this has always been my little thing and it sits in my 
man cave upstairs. I brought it down here in my office just to show you, even though you didn't ask. I love it. <laughs> so I love will, it. This would be me, and Andy's giving back. Generally, I'd be giving back only to the kids. I figure once you become an adult, you can make your own decisions, you know. But <laughs> as a kid, you can't. You're helpless, and you know you depend on others. And sometimes there is no parent our parents in my case that was the case there was no father and so as a result uh who do you turn to you know gangs or somebody that cares for you or loves you or you think they do uh nurtures you so why not be me you know as an advocate and why not be an organization such as the huntley foundation why why not why not be that to some kid out there that needs you you know so anyway didn't ask me that, but I just thought I'd ask. I that. love that. Oh, well, that okay. you know what? I think that that's a great way to end. Uh, I think uh, that that about sums up this entire podcast. Uh, thank you so much. I think so. So thank you thank so much, you. Guillermo. Thank you so much, Guillermo. I don't thank know you. that we've talked this long with any of our guests, so uh, well, I appreciate sure get it. Edit it down to what's relevant. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was more I, I, relevant. Yeah, Nathan has a big job. So. This might right. go sh- just, just straight straight online. Thank you so much, Gabriel. We'll definitely be in touch All and right. follow up about this and to get this out to the world. So again, thank you and have a, a blessed rest. I of am day. humble. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much, Guillermo. We appreciate All right. it. Okay. Have a blessed okay. day. Thank Take you. care. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.